So the title of tonight's talk is The Abundance of Our Hearts, The Practice of Gratitude. And I'm going to start by reading the second page of the New York Times article <laughs> by <laughs> Richard Wright. <laughs> because he goes into the second half of the retreat, right? Which <laughs> you are in. It's great. <laughs> by the time I left, eating the food I'd initially disdained ranked up there with above average sex. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating by much. When I first got there, I didn't understand why some people were closing their eyes while eating. But, but by the end of the retreat, I was closing mine. The better to focus on the source of my ecstasy. He must have been talking about tonight's tomato soup, right? I wasn't just living in the moment, I was luxuriating in it. Also, my view of weeds changed. <laughs> There's a kind of weed that I had spent years killing, sometimes manually, sometimes with chemicals. On a walk one day, I looked down at one of those weeds and it looked as beautiful as any other plant. Why had I so harshly judged an innocent plant? If this sounds crazy to you, you should hear how crazy it sounds to me. I'm not the weed-hugging type, you know. <laughs> And as long as we're on the subject of crazy, there was a moment, there was my moment of bonding with a lizard. <laughs> I looked at this lizard and watched it react to the local stimuli and thought, I'm in the same boat as that lizard, born without being asked to be born, trying to make sense of things, and, f and far from getting the whole picture. And here's the crazy part. I kind of loved that lizard a little bit for a little while. As we expand the forms of practice that we're familiar with, this practice of mindfulness and loving kindness, as we meet the, mo the moment gently for what it is, as we meet our lives in this way, there is a kindness that arises in the form of gratitude. This openness and wonder of this moment that is unfolding in front of us, this true nature of our experience. It's, it's, the, it's the experience of, wow, I am truly living, not a thought, not a dream, not a wish, but an actual experience. This wow is the natural movement of our life offering its preciousness to us. So I don't know if your experience in the morning when we walk down the hill for uh, breakfast and come back up, can you smell the sunrise? Can the, the smells change as the sun gets higher? 
this morning there were two fawns grooming each other on the hill. Just phenomenal. The tenderness of life with life. And those thousands of tiny little yellow flowers that are just all over the place. When we recognize these amazing things that, you know, we've used this phrase before, taken for granted over and over again, life becomes this wondrous, clear, lived experience in the moment rather than some effort on our part to create some life in the future, which is what we're usually doing with our time. Gratitude is this internal experience that rises from our heart when there's appreciation. And it's not always planned. It can be very spontaneous. I have a friend that I walk uh, periodically in the San Francisco Arboretum. And they're really good at just, you know, in the middle of a conversation that could be really quite engaged and deep, they'll just say, oh my God, look at the wisteria, or the camellias, or I wonder what that tree is. And at first I'm a little jarred from the conversation, but then I get it. I get what they're appreciating, and I also appreciate them for having gone there. I don't know if some of you had the joy of being in the space of San Francisco City Hall when they started marrying uh, LGBT couples, because the energy was effusive. It was, it, was, uh, it was something that you walked into and you could not not participate. So there were these gay couples getting married, but there were these heterosexual couples getting married. And those heterosexual couples were having a fabulous time. <laughs> and flowers were being sent from New York and Minneapolis and Miami to anyone who was getting married. <laughs> on an ongoing basis. <laughs> and the gay couples there got it. They saw how the heterosexual couples, the straight couples, were enjoying and, and, and living this, this, this effusiveness. And there was this gratitude of feeling completely accepted feeling the, the joy in other people's joy. You could feel the appreciation in the air, just like I was describing about tasting the kindness in the orange. So I want to differentiate a little bit, and this may be a little bit of my cognitive stuff, but I actually make a distinction between the experience of gratitude and the action of giving thanks. Gratitude can precede this giving of thanks, but it actually, giving thanks actually requires an internal intention. 
And the giving of thanks actually doesn't require gratitude. So that if I thank you for something, I can have so many different motivations behind that thank you. And so in Buddhist psychology, they say that, that our whole experience is balanced on this razor-sharp sword of intention. That we can do something, and it really doesn't depend on what we do, but the internal intention behind it. So when I thank you, is it because I want more gifts from you? Is it done because I just need to do a superficial courtesy? Is it because I want to look good and elevate my status? Or am I truly grateful out of this appreciation of kindness? And you can feel how different each of those circumstances are as an experience, right? So there are a lot of intentions behind the action of giving thanks. But with gratitude, no one can obligate me to feel grateful. It's an internal movement. So my experience is that cultivating gratitude is like um, cultivating metta, loving-kindness. It's a mindfulness practice, and really to know what are the conditions that support it. When is it easy, and when is it, when is it not so easy? And gratitude is difficult when we're keeping score, when we're in the, in the competition mode, the comparing mind. We've talked about that a lot. So I have these two little cartoons. And the first one is this couple that's sitting in front of a, a, a TV set. And the caption is, this week on the amazing race to enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Barb and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to self? There's not much gratitude there. There's no space for it. So these are two meditators, right, sitting. When I was making money, I was making the most money. Now that I'm spiritual, I'm the most spiritual. <laughs> Whatever. It's hard to feel grateful when we're competing because we don't feel that we have enough. Because enough means always more than somebody else. Someone always loses in a competition, and even if we're competing against ourselves, like when we're making the comparison with ourselves, is this sitting as good as the last sitting? Is this retreat as good as the last retreat? A portion of our own experience loses. We often have mixed feelings about receiving in our life, receiving gifts. My parents are quite elderly. They're 90, my father's 93 and my mother's 90, and they live uh, in an uh, independent assisted living facility up north. And when they first got there, or actually it was, they had started to get to know people there, and um, after about a year there, um, they found that whenever they went to breakfast, and you know, 
people have their routines. So they always sit at the same table, they always go at the same time. Somebody had poured coffee for them. Okay, so that was unusual. But it started happening every day. And they were agitated. <laughs> they like, like, who is this? What do they want from me? <laughs> do I deserve this coffee? What if it's somebody else's coffee? <laughs> and gradually they found out who was pouring the coffee for them. And they weren't pouring the coffee for anybody else. And it was a way of introducing and getting to know. And, and, and they eventually relaxed into being given and being grateful for it. Gratitude is, is difficult when we're distracted, when we're um, not mindful. So uh, going back to my experience with Pindapat or the alms round uh, in the morning um, in Thailand, my uh, temple was in a small village about 60 kilometers south of Chiang Mai. But I did have the opportunity to practice in downtown Bangkok for the, in, during the last month that I was in Thailand, which is a very different environment. And um, uh, the alms round in the morning is intense in the sense that hundreds of people line up to offer the monastics food. This may sound wonderful, and it is, but there's a lot of pressure on the monastics because you're carrying all this food. It's, <laughs> it is so heavy. And they give, you, they give it to you in plastic bags that dig into your arms, and you have to hide the plastic bags underneath the robes. And, and I, don't, I don't, unfortunately, I didn't learn Thai. I didn't have time to. And so w one of the monks in the monastery was leading me the path, you know, because I didn't know my way. But he didn't speak English that well, and so my focus was on him. Don't lose sight of him. <laughs> Meanwhile, people were offering me just amazing amounts of food. And I was so distracted because I didn't want to get lost that I could feel the energy change between the, pre the, the lay folks and, and my own experience. And the, my, my guiding monk turned the corner and I was abrupt with one particular offering and I immediately felt it. When I'm not present for the generosity, when I didn't allow it to flow, and when I wasn't grateful, when I wasn't mindful. The Buddha said there are two precious beings in this world, those who are grateful and those who are generous. And it is, and the practices of dana and generosity and the practices of gratefulness and gratitude are like a hand that go into the glove. They're, they mutually complement each other. They are so close in the, um, in the culture, in cultures that are infused with the Dharma, that have 
had the Dharma as their, their support for these centuries. So I know that some of you have spent many, a long time in Thailand. Some of you I know live in Thailand. And the monastery is not just a sacred space for practice. It's a community center. It's where grandmothers and grandfathers and their kids come and whether they meditate or not, they're, you know, cooking, they're sewing, they're, they're um, playing chess with the monks. Um, and the gratitude for this space that's created for the community to hold the teachings, but also to provide a, um, uh, an identity for that community that gratitude is expressed back to the monastery or the temple with the practice of dana, not just monetarily, but with their physical presence, their, you know, uh, their labor. Um, and so regardless of whether there's an event or a dharma talk, the practice of generosity is, is practiced. They have, and, and some of the cultural forms are really interesting. They have, you know, these, these money trees, which are quite beautiful. You know, it's sort of like um, this, this uh, skeletal form and people pin uh, bills to it. And, and it turns into this, you know, beautiful art object that's offered to the monastery. Uh, when... Um, when dana is when when the monetary dana is offered in the temple, uh, somebody in the community may start walking towards the front with an envelope of of money or checks, and it's not about the person, right? So people start putting their money into that envelope, you know, as they as as the person arrives, walks through the crowd, and they'll stop and put more money in. And then eventually the envelope arrives at the at the altar. This abundance of activity and 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 what the monastery and the temple provide um, is an indication that gratitude is easier when there isn't a feeling of abundance. When we feel full and complete, it is easier to be grateful. When we feel loved, it is easier to share that love. When we feel cared for, it's easier to care for others. It sounds like a no-brainer, but often in the abundance we actually forget the gratitude. Karanuta is the Pali word for gratitude, and there are two sections to it. So kata is, means that which has been done. Anutta means knowing or recognizing or remembering. So it has the same flavor as sati, which is mindfulness, which also has that quality of remembering. So kata means knowing or recognizing what has been done for one's benefit. But sometimes in the abundance, instead of remembering 
the abundance and the gratitude that comes from it. We just want more of the abundance. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, it's fascinating. In the West, you have bigger homes, yet smaller families. You have endless conveniences, yet you, ha you never seem to have any time. You can travel anywhere in the world, and yet you don't cross the road to meet your neighbors. I don't think people have become more selfish. Their lives have become easier, and that has spoiled them. They expect more. They constantly compare themselves to others, which brings no real freedom. We just want more of the abundance. How, many, how much more clothing do we need? How many more cars do we need? Anna talked about this. How much is enough, really? There's a, a piece of the eating meditation that actually you're invited to take home with you, and that the invitation is to um, stop eating five bites from full. How do you do that? You can only do that with your awareness. And actually, this invitation is not just about food intake, because usually we eat 500 bites past the feeling of full, right? Because we're not eating the food. We're eating the TV show, or the conversation, or the newspaper, or our emotions. But the template of this experience is what it would be like to live our life five bites from full. What would it be like to buy your clothes five bites from full? What would it be like to use your gasoline five bites from full? You know you're going to survive. The world would be a different place. That's why this practice is radical. And this simple invitation, five bites from full, is pointing to the experience of not needing anything, not feeling needy, which is what we've been talking about in terms of contentment. When one is content, the second noble truth has dissolved. Craving and wanting are dispelled. And actually, when you think about it, all craving is the craving for no craving. All craving is the craving for contentment. Even your most extreme cravings, if you think about addiction, you want to be in the high, or you want to be in that place of satisfaction. But craving doesn't know that it has no wisdom. It's only your awareness and your insight that has wisdom to see that craving actually wants its own destruction and doesn't know how to get it. So the Buddha gave, uh, his last teaching was to this person called um, Subhadra, and it's called 
the bequeathed teaching sutra. And I'm only going to read a little paragraph about it because it's about this practice of contentment and satisfaction. You who want to escape from all the various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. People who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy even if they're in heaven. People who do not know satisfaction are poor even if they're rich. People who do know satisfaction are rich even if they're poor. contentment for what you do have and also for what you don't have. I like this phrase. It's, a, it's an anonymous, anonymous phrase on the internet, but I think it's hysterical. If you, haven't, if you haven't all the things you want, be grateful for the things you don't have that you wouldn't want. <laughs> So, for example, I'm grateful that I don't know how to Twitter. <laughs> this contentment is not about how much we have. It's about being mindful of how little it is we actually need to be happy. And in that space, there's the space for gratitude because there's a freedom from wanting. Gratitude is this beneficial, wholesome feeling in which other beneficial states of mind can thrive. And so I'm talking about loving kindness, compassion, generosity, joy, forgiveness. I was telling this little story in one of my groups that I was driving with a friend to, uh, I think it was Achaia in Berkeley, but I was going over the Bay Bridge and uh, traffic over the Bay Bridge is intense. And um, I got cut off in the, in the, um, in the traffic. And, uh, and so I just tried an experiment and I just thanked the person for cutting me off and just asked for, well, cut me off again. And it was, it was a moment that actually changed the valence of my internal experience. Because I didn't, I didn't go into that thing that we call, you know, road rage. <laughs> the deeper we go into gratitude, the more that gratitude involves everything in our life, not just the pleasant experiences. It is about really, is it possible to appreciate everything in our life? The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Unconditional gratitude rejoices whatever is taking place. because we actually would not be who we are without all of our experiences. So, you know, our tendency is really just to focus on those 10,000 pleasant experiences. It's really only half our life. When we are mindful of only that, 
we are losing so much of our experience. I think that this is a mirror when, when people are in relationship with each other. So I know that Stephen is really grateful for my presence in his life. But that means he has to be grateful for the irritating way that I ask probing questions incessantly. <laughs> How are you feeling? He has, to be, he has to be grateful for all of the triggers of my childhood that still come up. And I have to be grateful for all these pieces of paper that he never picks up. Because we come with all of that. The, you know, his most loving qualities comes with his litter. <laughs> Being grateful for the difficult and the easy. My... Uh, and so a lot of my spiritual practice right now resides with my parents as they fade. And my relationship with my parents has not always been easy. It is easy now. But it has been really difficult. Um, when I was growing up in a bicultural family, meaning you know they were immigrants and I was born here, the tensions in the household were quite intense in terms of, of my assimilation versus their uh, traditional holding of their culture. And then when I came out, the, the tension just exploded because, you know, most of my life I received the message from my mother, there's no such thing as gay people in China. <laughs> and... And so um, I had to, uh, well, it, it was just strained for a really long, there were times in which I just didn't want them to be around. You know, I, I just didn't want them in existence. And as I got into practice and, um, and I knew that this was, uh, a place that I was stuck. One of the teachings that I heard relatively early on was, uh, and this is from the Anguttara uh, Nikaya, even if one should carry about one's mother on one's shoulder and one's father on the other, and so doing should live a hundred years, not even by this could one repay one's parents could repay one's parents for the gift of giving life. Because it is only in this life plane that we can awaken. That is what is said. Because in the heaven realms, it's just too ecstatic. It's too much pleasure. In the hell realms, there's so much suffering it overwhelms the experience. It is only in this life plane of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that the possibility of the middle path through them is, is available to us. 
That is why this life is so precious, regardless of how, what kind of upbringing we had. That gift of life gives us this opportunity to be free. And we made it through, you know, our family. So it's, you know, my father is very cranky now. His body is, is pretty old and, and failing, and he's, he's hard of hearing. So uh, often I hear, don't talk to me, I can't hear you anyway. <laughs> and my mother, and my mother still is this, you know, she still sends me care packages that I don't really want, but I only live an hour away. And And it's okay, and it's okay. And it's okay, um, recently, a, a couple of months ago, my mother had a hip replacement and she had an interaction with a doctor that was not good. And she, I, for the first time, I saw her give up. And, uh, and so I was standing with her uh, at the hospital bed and she says, I don't want to go living anymore. I just don't want to go on anymore. And my father was yelling at me, what did she say? <laughs> and, you know, I could only be grateful that I was there. What if I wasn't there? And so I was just, the gratitude um, softened that whole, it actually made it funny, so that I could tell you. <laughs> and two nights ago I said, you know, that I had sort of leapfrogged the technology of being a parent um, and become a I am, uh, that's wrong, because I am my parents' parent right now, and that's okay, because they have one more gift that they are giving me on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And that is they're showing me how to die well. How I will choose to pass away. They are giving me choices by the way that they're showing up for it. Gratitude is not always accompanied by pleasant feelings. But gratitude is the realization that we, that I, would not be the person that I am without all of these experiences, these 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. One of the people in, in one of the groups this week said that she was feeling sorrow and joy almost at the same time, in the same breath. The joy and the sorrows in our life are so so close. So on one of our anniversaries, um, uh, Stephen and I went to Paris. And, um, and, and before I go there, uh, I'll say this. I am so grateful to be gay <laughs> because 
we get so many different anniversaries. You know, the day we met, our commitment ceremony, our wedding date, um, and if, they, if Ken Starr decides to take that away, which he has threatened to do, we'll just have another anniversary when we get married again. So, um, but more than that, I'm really grateful to be gay because I can be completely present here for you. Because I could not be present here without being completely present with myself. And that is why the invitation is for you, each of you, in whatever ways that you can, not leave anything behind, not leave anything at the door, but to bring all of your experiences into your practice, into your life, into this room. So anyway, we went on this vacation in Paris, and it was one of those 10-day experiences in which it was this spectacular experience. I mean, each day was getting better. It was, you know, we were getting along, we were seeing things that we had never seen. Each day was more joyful and happy until (laughs) we figured out that it was only 10 days long and that it was going to end. And like, what do we do now? Stop having a good time because it's going to end? There was this, there was this bitter sweetness. We have a word in English, it's called bittersweet. When the joy and the sorrow come right together, you can't just focus on the joys in our life. It's like the um, uh, invitation of compassion, that when kindness turns towards suffering, compassion is what automatically arises, which means that if we didn't have suffering in the world, there would be no compassion. That's how close the joys and the sorrows are. Can we truly be grateful for the unpleasant things in our life? So there's this classic Korean Zen story of a monk who was one of the living meditation masters, and he was living in a time in which it was, it was uh, torn with wars and, and and overrun by invaders, and he was running away from being um, killed and uh, traveling by night and getting more and more exhausted and, and um, didn't have any sustenance or, or drink, and he got so thirsty that he, would, that he thought he would die, and it was you know, a moonless night, so he was stumbling um, in the night, and he fainted. And when he awoke, uh, it was still pitch black, and he groped around and he miraculously found this bowl of, of water and he just drank and slaked his thirst and fell into a deep sleep and was so grateful. And when he awoke at dawn, he found that he had actually um, fallen in a battlefield covered with fallen soldiers and, and the bowl that he had drunk from was um, a skull with maggots at the bottom, and he regurgitated, he vomited. And in the next moment, 
he fully realized. He was fully awake. He achieved enlightenment. And the story is there is no way to take out any of those pieces, that they're all interlinked, that the, that the amazing experience that he had of opening was linked to all of these other experiences previous. We ha- all have incredibly difficult experiences in our life, and we create a beautiful life from them regardless. Otherwise, you just wouldn't be here. So my own experience with this is um, uh, I got to San Francisco about 20 years ago, and um, fairly soon after I got here, um, I was assaulted. And, um, and I don't know of any assault that's not traumatic. So I was able to get help and I went to the city hospital and there was a treat there was a trauma treatment center there that was very good and it was one of those things that sort of shifted the direction of things for me and um, I started doing much more volunteer work and I started um, uh, working at a substance abuse uh, counseling center uh, and realized really quickly that I would have to retrain in order to actually make a living. So I went back and became a social worker and uh, trained as a clinician and became a psychotherapist and worked for the city and one of the clinics in in, um, in Civic Center. And then there was a job that opened at uh, San Francisco General Hospital. And so I applied for it as their clinical supervisor. And... Um, when I got the job, um, I was going through the past files, um, and I realized that through the mergers and the changes, that I was now the supervisor of the clinic that I was treated in. It wasn't a planned sequence of events, but 10 years later, that's where I found myself, and it completely reoriented my relationship to the original trauma. That, you know, there was a way in which I could accept, allow, and be at peace in a way that I, you know, perhaps could not do previous to that. Suffering asks the question, why me? Why did this happen to me? Gratitude asks, who else? Who else can actually live this incredible life? Suffering really only knows how to survive. Gratitude has the insight that we were born for so much more than survival. We were actually born to be free. That's what makes this such a radical practice. Without gratitude, all we are left with is our complaints, our injustices, the impression, unfairness, all of the 10,000 sorrows. And that is the definition of what in, in the Buddhist world 
um, is called a hell realm. In our culture, we have different names for this hell realm. It's called depression, rage, denial, addiction. Gratitude does not eliminate grief or loss or pain, but it helps us complete it. It holds all of our life with kindness. So I don't know how many of you know Billy Mills. He's um, he's a um, Ogallala Sioux uh, Indian who grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation in the 1950s. His mom died of cancer uh, when he was eight and his dad died of a stroke when he was 12. And he turned his sort of grief and anger towards sports to um, cope and survive. And when he was a junior at the University of Kansas, he made the NCAA All-American three times. And uh, when they were taking a photo of um, the people in the national championships, he was asked to get out of the photograph. He said that uh, it almost caused him to commit suicide. But there was a voice that told him to persevere. Three years later, he went, on, he went and won the 10,000 meter race in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. No other American has won a gold medal in that event before or since. And many commentators um, consider that, this, the, that his victory is the greatest upset in Olympic history. He writes this passage, which really expresses this gratitude, this kind of gratitude, this kind of unconditional gratitude. I asked for wealth that I might have power. I was given poverty that I might find my inner strength. I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given the life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given powerlessness that I might learn to surrender. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each moment. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I asked, I received nothing that I asked for, and yet all my wishes came true. Each of us have suffered in our own ways. Each of us have faced that adversity of the first noble truth. And each of us has this possibility, like that image of the lotus emerging from the dark, muddy waters 
of creating beautiful lives. The more that we are aware, the more precious this beautiful life becomes. I am so grateful that I found the Dharma. Because really, I was a mess. <laughs> I was a tortured soul before I started to practice. And now I am grateful because I can find the Dharma everywhere. And so I'm going to end with a piece of mundane Dharma that I found in Walgreens. <laughs> looking for a birthday card for um, Stephen's daughter, which we found. And I said to him, we're not sending it until I Xerox it. And it's called How to Make a Beautiful Life. Reflections for a daughter on her birthday. Love yourself. Make peace with who you are and where you are at this moment in time. Listen to your heart. If you can't hear what it's saying in this noisy world, make time for yourself. Enjoy your own company. Let your mind wander among the stars. Try, take chances, make mistakes. Life can be messy and confusing at times, but it is also full of surprises. The next rock in your path might be a stepping stone. There aren't any shortcuts to tomorrow. You have to make your own way. To know where you're going is only part of it. You need to know where you've been, and if you ever get lost, don't worry. The people who love you will find you. Count on it. Life isn't days and years. It's what you do with time. And with all the goodness and grace that's inside of you, make a beautiful life, a kind of life you deserve. That beauty, by another word, can be called freedom. So, I am so appreciative and grateful to be here with you. Thank you for your attention. So before I um, turn this off, I wanted to invite you to come at 9 o'clock uh, because I have a, um, a chant that's particular to the Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.